Welcome to Off the Page, the International Literature Festival Dublin's podcast. This week, we're revisiting a conversation from 2015 between neurologist and author of It's All in Your Head, Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan, and author Brian Dillon. Since this conversation, Suzanne's book has been universally acclaimed and received the Welcome Prize 2016. Music is provided by Geppetto, with vocals by Louise Gaffney. I don't know what people's sort of interests or qualifications are in the audience, but most people don't know what a dissociative seizure is. But you might have heard of it by its more it, it, the name it was known by about a hundred years ago, which this would have been known as hysteria or as a hysterical seizure. So these seizures are occurring for purely emotional, purely psychological reasons, and there is no underlying brain disease. There's multiple ways in which our emotions kind of affect us um, and produce physical symptoms. And for neurologists, we see the most extreme forms. So seizures are one of the worst forms. But if you can imagine a symptom now, then the mind has produced it. And basically, I would see people with blindness, deafness, loss of memory, difficulty speaking, and so forth. It is an extremely common disorder. It, one in five people who walk through the door of a neurology clinic have a psychosomatic condition rather than a neurological condition. One in five people who walk into an epilepsy clinic don't have epilepsy, they have dissociative seizures. So this is not a trifling problem. And yet in my first job, when I was constantly telling, having to tell people that they had a psychosomatic condition, they were constantly surprised. And I couldn't understand why they were surprised when this is such a common disorder. And that really sort of is the purpose of writing this book. I, I'm trying to really tell my patients' stories and exp- um, try and make people more familiar with this so that people who have these conditions in the future will have heard of them so that their journey through the illness will be easier than it is for at the moment when people find it a very difficult to diagnosis. And in the book, it is very much a shared journey between myself and my patients. Because on the first hand, you know, the question is asked, what happens to a person to get them to this point, and how do they get out of it again? But it's also been a journey for myself, because, you know, as a medical student or as a junior doctor, when you encounter this for the first time, or you meet someone who's blind, and they tell you they can't see, but everything is normal, it's extremely hard to get your head around that concept. And there's a case in the book of a woman who's blind, and when I become familiar with her, when we're talking, our eyes are meeting in the same way that your eyes meet somebody who is sighted. And it's very difficult then to, for, for you to appreciate how real the disability feels to them. And if I, as a doctor, find it hard to understand the concept, then what hope does a patient have? And I'll, it's not just a neurological problem, I should add, because if we just look at these extremes, then you'll all, most of you will never get this, because most of this is quite a rare condition. This is the most severe form. A huge number of you will get the commoner forms because the most common way for, for kind of psychological distress to manifest is things we all get all the time, which are tiredness and, um, and uh, pain. So people who go to rheumatology clinics, 50% of people in gynecology clinics with pain, 
probably have psychosomatic conditions. 30% of people go to rheumatology clinics with pain probably have psychosomatic conditions. So this is um, a very sort of uh, very common problem, which is not often spoken about. Um, and finally, you can probably hear my voice is cracking a bit now because I'm awash with psychosomatic syndromes as I stand up here. <laughs> so we all get them. If a cardiologist took my heart rate now, I'd be rushed straight to the intensive care unit. But uh, so these are common things that happen to us all. And that's what I try to teach my patients. You know, if it's frightening enough to stand up here and start getting your heart racing and your voice cracking, etc., then if you're under chronic stress, it's hard to escape. Why is it unreasonable to think that your body can do something even more extraordinary when that arises? Thanks very much, Suzanne. It's interesting to think that, I mean, it, it seems that right now, at this, at this moment, it's less frightening to stand uh, and speak yeah. um, than it is to sit. So there's, there's something interesting to do with the way that people find coping mechanisms yeah. for, for those smaller, those more controllable yeah. symptoms. And that that can maybe become a kind of pattern that you, you, you fall into of, yeah. of finding a physical way of dealing with something that actually has a, a yeah. psychological origin. Well, there's absolutely no way that, you know, I'm not accustomed to sitting here and talking to groups of people in this way or being interviewed. You know, so there's no way that I'm going to be able to prevent the symptoms that I have. So it isn't often a matter of, of trying to stop these things happening. It's just learning how to cope with them. Um, so you know you're going to be worried um, or frightened by frightening things, and you just find um, a way that works for you to cope. I practiced standing up, so I had to stand up right. <laughs> when okay. I came to talk. Okay. That worked for me. I practiced pick it, picking up the glass of water without shaking, so <laughs> I think we're away. <laughs> Which means that I'd quite like to, to start asking you, I think we'll come back perhaps to, to some of what we've seen uh, yeah. in the video, which is extraordinary, and as you say, um, links us back immediately um, to the history of hysteria, yeah. also to some of the early footage, for example, of, um, of patients with what was called shell shock, which yeah. I've been reading too much about in, yeah. in, uh, the recent, in recent years. But I suppose I'd quite like to ask you about some of the specific um, cases. Sure. Um, we should probably establish, first of all, that the cases are anonymized. So can you say a little bit about... Sure. The, the, the anxieties there and how, you, yeah. how you've dealt with those as a writer? I mean, it's, been ex it's an extremely delicate situation because the nature of psychosomatic symptoms is that they're physical symptoms that are masking something else. So if you're psychologically distressed but you can't find the words for it, that may come out as a physical symptom. It stands, therefore, that you're, you're not going to wish to reveal your diagnosis to the world and... You know, many of the people I see who I diagnose with these sort of seizures, they don't tell their family members, they don't tell the people they work for, because there's a huge stigma attached to it. So obviously I had to be incredibly careful in anonymizing the patients in the book. So all personal details. What I've tried to do is keep the core of, of the story, so the fundamentals of why someone developed whatever specific syndrome they developed, and then the actual um, the physical symptoms. But everything else has been heavily anonymized because these are um, conditions that people really don't want to talk out loud about, and that's part of the problem, yeah. So if, could we get a sense of the, the kind of narrative that develops and the, the, the kind of conversations that you have with a specific patient? I was thinking about Pauline, who appears yeah. very early on in the book. Yeah. So you mean how we kind of discuss the diagnosis? Well, how, how she might have presented to begin yeah, with and how, how, how okay. things followed from okay. there? I mean, very often my starting point with the patients is I see them when they've gotten to their absolute worst. So Pauline is a young girl 
who basically, I was called to a surgical ward to see her when she had a number of seizures. She'd been admitted to hospital with leg pain. Um, she'd been ex investigated for her leg pain. Um, m no medical cause had been found and decision was made she could be discharged from hospital. She had no history of seizures of any description. And uh, shortly prior to her discharge, she um, collapsed and had a seizure, subsequently had multiple seizures. Um, and that was the point at which I was called to see her. Um, she has a particularly sort of severe form of this psychosomatic disorder that we call a somatic symptom disorder, which is basically extremely dis multiple, extremely disabling physical illnesses, none of which are medically explained that went back many years. So I saw her for the first time with a seizure at the age of 27, but when I met with her, her illness had really started at the age of 15, when she had multiple things happen to her over the many years that led to the seizure. Often the very first thing is something very small, like a viral infection, and I think in her case it was um, pain-passing urine, and she was diagnosed with a possible urinary tract infection at the age of 15 and treated for that, but then it recurred multiple times. She then had, over the course of the next 10 years, abdominal pain. Again, she had each time she had a new symptom, it was extensively investigated. Um, with gastroscopy, so different tubes going down into her stomach, um, uh, colonoscopies, x-rays, MRI scans, etc. And ev every new symptom, so I think she started with a urinary tract infection and then had abdominal pain, um, then had some problems with eating and weight loss, joint pain, sorry, left out as well. And each thing was extensively investigated and never explained. And nothing in it typical manifestation of this disorder, everything went away a bit, but nothing went away completely, and nothing was ever, um, nothing was ever fully resolved. Um, and she got stepwise symptoms until eventually one day, after a routine operation, she woke up from the anesthetic and was completely paralyzed um, from the waist down. And that again was extensively investigated and unexplained, and she never fully recovered from that. At an, uh, following another operation or admission for urinary tract infection, she lost control of her bladder and a catheter was put in to allow her to empty her bladder. She never regained control of her bladder. So by the time I saw her, she was intermittently wheelchair bound. She had to pass a tube into her bladder in order to allow her to empty it. She had chronic pain and was on multiple medications. And now she had seizures, basically. I don't know if you want me to kind of continue with that or if you wanted to ask a specific thing Well, I suppose one, one of the um, things that's very striking in, in all of the mm. case studies um, is the moment where within that kind of awful constellation mm. of symptoms yeah. and a long history, and you talk yeah. at one point, uh, I think at several points, about the patient's notes and you know, so mm. some the volumes, fat mm. volumes of notes, and that, yeah. that in a way... When that arrives, that's, a con that's already a signal. So there are all of these, these details mm. just in the description of, uh, of the illness and what's, mm. what's happening around it, practically speaking. And then there's a moment, often or maybe always in these cases, where you must broach the possibility with the yeah. patient, first of all. Yeah. Maybe we can talk about that to begin with. Yeah. But then also with the patient's family, yeah. um, the possibility that this is, in fact, a, a psychological yeah. issue. I mean, there's a very particular reason why I, as a neurologist, have come head-on with this condition more so than other types of specialists, and that's really because of how we sort of investigate and examine people neurologically. So, for example, if I went to a doctor with tiredness or pain, 
other than, you know, you can't prove pain or disprove it. You know, I have it if I say I have it, and it's as bad as I say it is. Um, and basically, it's very difficult to measure it in any way. It's just a subjective thing. Um, as a neurologist, it is actually, a lot of the um, parts of the neurological system are amenable to measurement. So, for example, with these patients having seizures, I can measure the brain waves, and your brain waves look different if you're awake or asleep or a little bit tired or your different levels of awareness all come with a different brainwave pattern. Um, and that's exactly what brings me constantly in confrontation with these disorders. Because I, if you measure the brainwave patterns of the patients you've just seen here, although they appear to be unconscious and can't interact with you, their brainwaves actually show a normal waking pattern. So you can, you can reliably distinguish between someone who is unconscious for a psychological reason and someone who is unconscious for a physical reason. And that's why when I met Pauline after she'd had multiple medical encounters, um, I was able to do tests on her that allowed me to examine her during her seizures and allowed me to have definitive evidence that her seizures had to be psychological in origin. So the first thing I have to do in that circumstance is break that news to Pauline, basically. And you can imagine, if you've come to the hospital with the leg pain and seizures, the exactly last thing you're expecting is to be told that your seizures are, um, have a psychological or emotional cause, so it has to be broached extremely carefully. Um, I usually have a sort of a method by which I do this. Um, you know, the first thing I want people to know before I tell them that their seizures are psychological in origin is I want them to know that we all get these symptoms. I want to destigmatize immediately and say that, you know, when I'm nervous, my hands shake, my voice cracks, my heart races, you know, the emotional things are normal. And maybe in, in, um, if you encounter extreme stresses, perhaps that can go to another level. So if we all get it just you drop a book in the floor or horses, hearts will start racing, if something tiny will change the physiology of the body, then why shouldn't something big and more chronic cause bigger changes, basically? So I'll usually start by telling a patient that, um, that these are normal things that happen to all of us, but for some of us, like anything, it, it can be more extreme. Then I try to explain the tests, basically, so that people understand that the diagnosis is not being made in a judgmental way, that this is a scientific diagnosis to make it easier for people to accept that, um, that uh, what I'm saying is correct and it's not, not just an impression that I've formed from a young girl who appears to be anxious, etc. Um, and it really is making people realize, the fundamental part is trying to make people realize that if you're unconscious for psychological reasons, um, it doesn't mean it's not real. Um, that's where you always, the problem you always run into with psychological problems is or, you know, you're saying I'm putting it on, you're saying it's not real. It's absolutely real. My hands are shaking now, I'm not imagining it, it's absolutely real. There's nothing put on about it, and if I try to stop it, I can't stop it. And that's what I usually kind of try to say to patients, is these things are, you know, the harder you try to stop them, the harder they are, to, the, the worse they get sometimes. So it's really about explaining to patients it could happen to anyone, it's real, it's out of your control, and um, it's a seizure that happens for psychological reasons is no less serious and no less disabling than an epileptic seizure. In fact, in certain ways, epileptic seizures are easier because, as my patients would often say, I wish I had epilepsy because you can take a drug. It has a 70% chance of working, and seizures aren't very, don't happen very often. 
whereas these sort of seizures are very hard to treat. So this is a very, it's psychological, but it is a very serious condition. So usually I try just to explain to patients that I'm not minimizing what's happening to you. I think it is extremely serious, but it happens to be psychological. And the only thing that changes is not how serious your disorder is or not how um, real your disorder is. The only thing that it changes is what we're going to do about it. Um, unfortunately, that conversation does not always go well. Um, you know, because, you know, if, if you have physical symptoms masking psychological distress, they're masking it for a reason. You're protecting, they're protecting you from something. You know, sometimes the emotional distress is more upsetting than the seizure. And for me to strip away the seizure and try to bring the emotional distress out will be resisted. So it wouldn't be unusual for people to get pretty upset and pretty angry in the course of that conversation. I think in Pauline's case, she, she struggled in the normal way that anyone would. You know, she sort of, you know, put forward all the reasonable arguments, which is, you know, um, it feels so real to me. Well, it feels real because it is real and so forth. And in time, she came to accept it. It was difficult with her other medical symptoms because these, if you have one psychosomatic symptom, it's very likely that you have lots of them um, if you're as extreme as Pauline. So I'm not a gastroenterologist, I'm not a rheumatologist, but it was very compelling for me to believe that if her seizures were psychosomatic in origin and she'd been investigated for abdominal pain and joint pain and all those tests were normal, you know, my clinical suspicion would be that all of her symptoms were psychosomatic. I didn't raise that with her in the first instance because what I'm trying to do with my patients is not alienate them. I'm trying to you know, help them get into the diagnosis so that they can move to a point where they're willing to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist. So if I go kind of barreling in and say, everything that's ever happened to you since the age of 15 is psychological, then I'm gonna immediately alienate the patient. So I usually stick to the facts and then I wait for them to ask at a later point. And I usually also rely heavily on the support of family, et cetera, because that can go in a variety of different ways. Some family members um, are extremely supportive of their loved one and of me when I'm giving the diagnosis. It does happen just as often that I'll give the diagnosis to a patient and that they will you know, have an entirely normal struggle with it and then get used to it. And then they ring up their family and say, what their diagnosis is, and the family rail against it and become very angry. And you can kind of understand that, because if I say to your 20-year-old daughter that her problems are psychological, unfortunately what happens then is parents think, well, is it my fault? Is it something I did? So they're invested in this as well. So it's, it's very much giving a diagnosis, not just to a single person, but to give it to a whole family and making sure that everyone accepts it equally. There's a real sense in, in the book that, as, it, you, as you describe it now, you say, I usually try to, yeah. etc. But it, there's a very uh, keen sense in, in the book that, of your learning process yeah. about how to have those conversations. Yeah. And as you say, sometimes it, it goes yeah. disastrously. Um, the case of the, the patient who's called uh, Shahina in, yeah. the, in the book is, is really interesting in that regard. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's difficult. You know, I have to learn to try and read what is happening because, you know, there's no point in pushing someone too far. If they're not liking the sound of the diagnosis, I try to, you know, pull back a little bit and have the conversation in stages. Um, because basically what I'm trying to do 
is get someone to the next stage. I'm a neurologist. I cannot make these people better. I can only make the diagnosis. And what I need for them to do is consider, not, not necessarily believe that I'm definitely telling the truth, but consider a psychological um, reason for their symptoms. And if they at least consider it and talk to a psychologist just in an open-minded way without assuming the diagnosis is correct, then I consider that to be a success, sadly. Um, but basically, in the case of Shahina, um, you know, she got pretty angry. Um, she was a girl who, after a hand injury, her muscles went into spasm. Um, and her hand, her, her right hand just became completely useless. We call it a focal dystonia. It's just kind of a muscle spasm of the hand. And in the first instance, I didn't actually decide for sure that the problem was psychological. Um, but what we, all of her tests were normal. But there's some things you can't measure by tests. So I can measure someone's awareness um, in seizures by a test. But if someone's hand is in spasm, it's very hard to prove exactly what's causing that. But the sequence of events went that, you know, and we, we treat people with botulinum toxin, Botox. So if you've got muscle spasm and it's really bad, we inject Botox into your hand to relieve the spasm. It doesn't solve the problem, but maybe relieve some of the pain and discomfort. Um, we injected Botox into Shahina's hand and um, her symptoms immediately resolved. The problem with that is that Botox takes a couple of days to work, but her symptoms were instantaneously resolved by it, which, and that was where the evidence was that her symptoms had to be psychosomatic because you simply don't get better that quickly. I addressed it with her in a completely unprepared way, I would say. You know, um, I tried to be as gentle with her, but she was utterly un not expecting it and um, became quite angry. Um, and I didn't have necessarily a backup you know, I, th I find it useful. I've learned over the years, you know, you introduce the idea gently at the start, but don't say it outright, and then eventually allow people to think about it a little while and then talk about it again. And I work with a very good team of nurses who basically then will um, talk to the patient afterwards. So after I leave, I line them up to go and talk to the patient afterwards because sometimes they don't want to be honest with me, but they might be honest with the nurses and so forth. I've learned that with time. And in Shahina's particular case, I told her when she, you know, I, I don't think I'd adequately prepared her. And I also didn't have a backup ready afterwards. Um, so she was really quite furious. And subsequently, when her parents came in, they were equally furious. And they considered this diagnosis to be extremely insulting, basically. Um, and unfortunately, I lost her then, you know, because then she discharged herself. She no longer trusted me and she left. And that's what I'm now trying to learn how not to let happen. I don't care how angry someone is. I just don't want them to leave so that we can have the conversation two or three times. And unfortunately, she, she left. And um, I didn't hear about her for a long time and ultimately got a letter to say that she had gone elsewhere and was continuing to get Botox treatment for her problem, but it had spread to the rest of her limbs. So, you know, I feel, you know, it's a very crucial moment is, is the moment that you tell people because if people will accept it, it can make all the difference to the outcome. That, hers is a, a good instance maybe of n not just that the, the suggestion of a psychological problem is, is a kind of affront mm -hmm. um, in terms perhaps of a kind of shame about psychological mm -hmm. illness, but also it seems to depend, as many of the cases do, on what the patient or the patient's loved ones actually know Mm -hmm. the, the, there's a, a sense that uh, in some of the cases, the symptoms themselves are products of knowledge, mm -hmm. 
or of ignorance, of, and of, of a partial yeah. knowledge. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could say something about that, but the, the way that specific symptoms are actually yeah. determined by what the patient knows about the body to begin with. Yeah. I mean, it's a constant, it is a constant source of fascination to me. Why does one person get one symptom and someone else get another symptom? And, you know, there's been much um, kind of uh, in, in Freud, etc. you know, a lot of symptoms were considered to be symbolic. You know, if you get a slap in the face, then you get, or if you feel an insult like a slap in the face, then you feel pain in your face is going to be your psychosomatic symptom. But, you know, that's not my experience of it at all. Um, it's very much based on what you know about your body, about the body in general, what you know about anatomy, what you've, what you've seen in the past. So, um, e for example, if someone has a sibling with epilepsy, then so that you're, you could, or works, I've seen it very often in people who work with learning disabled people who have seizures. So people, when they encounter distress, their symptoms are modeled on what they've seen. So it wouldn't be unusual for me to see people who are nurses or people working in, in homes for learning disabled people or have siblings with epilepsy are the people who get seizures because that's what they've seen. Um, and it's based on what you know about the anatomy. For example, there's a case in the book about a woman who has a lump on one side of her head and um, she's absolutely convinced that this lump is something and, and her GP doesn't really fully reassure her that or fails to reassure her rather um, that that lump isn't anything to worry about until she gets to a point where she feels like it's burrowing through her skull and, you know, her, just, her imagination really blew this lump up so she thought it was pressing against her brain. But what she wasn't aware of was that... Um, and, and then she developed weakness in her limbs. But what she wasn't aware of is that, the, you know, the right side of the brain affects the, uh, controls the left limbs. In her mind, the right side of the brain controls the right limbs. So she got the lump on the right side and the whole right side of the body became paralyzed. So very often, these symptoms are coming from your imagination. And your imagination doesn't pluck them out of thin air. They pluck them out of your knowledge of the body and um, what you've seen in the past and what illnesses there have been in the family. I always remember my sister, um, her husband had really bad back pain for a while. And she had, uh, she had a three-year-old at that time. And her husband used to lie on the ground complaining about her back pain. I'm sure she'd love me telling this story. But uh, I remember seeing her, her nephew, or my nephew, her, her son, and, you know, playing in the park when he wanted a bit of attention, he started saying, oh, my back is hurting me, my back is hurting me. And we were just shocked. You know, he, he had clearly seen his dad complaining of this and thought, well, that's a good way of getting attention, you know. I'm not suggesting my patients are looking for attention, but merely that they're... Um, they're modeling their symptoms subconsciously. I have to emphasize that over and over again, subconsciously, on, on the illnesses they've seen and what they know about anatomy and so forth. Um, the pianist Glenn Gould, one, one of the great somatizers of the 20th century, mm -hmm. um, had an extraordinary knowledge um, of the pharmacopoeia. He knew everything about mm -hmm. uh, research into all kinds of drugs by the time of, you know, he was nearing the end of his life in the late 70s. But he knew nothing, mm -hmm. strictly nothing, about how the body actually mm -hmm. worked. Um, it seems now that, you know, at one point you say um, of one of the patients, Matthew, uh, who is convinced that he has MS, mm -hmm. um, that he's a product of the Internet age. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's in a way, it's, 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 what, it's one of the things that we, we now say always about our, our imaginations about illness or our hypochondria, our, our modes mm -hmm. of anxiety today, um, is that the Internet makes things 
worse, mm. that it feeds the imagination in Absolutely. a particular way that wouldn't have been available to you know, Glenn Gould in the 70s. Yeah. Um, can you say something about that particular, may, maybe Matthews is a good case, but yeah. not necessarily, but there might be others. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I always say, you know, don't look on the internet. I always look on the internet when I get a symptom, but don't do what I do, do what I say. Um, but basically, it's, it's impossible not to look. And the minute, if you get tingling in your foot, it's absolutely impossible not to look at the internet and say, well, what gives tingling in the foot? And if you do do that, you will get a list of horror stories. And if you, that's okay if you're not a worrier. You know, because we have different kinds of personalities and some of us worry and some of us don't. But if your tendency is to be anxious about your health and your tendency to be a little bit neurotic about things and you get tingling in your foot and you look at the internet and you see multiple sclerosis, which is what happened with Matthew, um, you know, it's, it's, if you are a worrier and you're looking for something to worry about, then the internet will feed those anxieties. Um, so... Um, it is a problem when people look on the internet because basically it, it really does not make you feel better. It's particularly a problem if you really don't know anything about medical things because um, it's very difficult on the internet to um, discern between you know, what's reliable and what isn't. Um, I find as a doctor, actually, it doesn't greatly affect... People are, are, because people don't know about medical things, if you look up the symptoms of epilepsy, for example, on the internet, um, and then come to me and describe all those symptoms, you will describe them wrong, because they're not very reliably described on the internet. It's a, they're very personal, subjective experiences. Um, so it doesn't necessarily affect me as a doctor, because when I hear people describe their symptoms from the internet, they sound like they've been described from the internet. Um, but it does. It is a problem for the patients um, because the vast majority of symptoms um, have a benign cause. The average. Most of us live now till the age of 82 or something is the average age. So the vast majority of things that happened to us during our lives, we're going to live till 82. Not, um, so many, many symptoms are very benign and have very simple causes. But if you look them up on the internet, unfortunately, that will feed your anxiety. I think in Matthew's case, he became absolutely convinced that he had multiple sclerosis. And unfortunately, then what began happening is the symptoms that he first had, which could have happened in multiple sclerosis, but could also happen in a million other things. Um, but then he saw things like, oh, that you get blurring of vision in multiple sclerosis. And unfortunately, he began getting new symptoms based on what he was reading on the internet. So yeah, it is, unfortunately, it is quite an unhealthy practice researching your symptoms. Um, particularly if you have a, an anxious sort of neurotic personality to start with, you know. There's a, th the whole field and, and your investigation of it kind of really questions our definition of, of really fundamental terms and ideas mm. that we live with all mm. the time. Uh, health is one of them. You yeah. know, the, it, in a way, the, the hypochondriac's kind of delusion is that health might be a state in which nothing happens mm. to your mm. body. You know, that's part yeah. of its it's yeah. uh, fantasy is that you could you could live in this entirely kind of equable um, and and unchanging yeah. uh, plateau in which your body simply does nothing okay. and that would be death right mm. um, it would be, you know it, yeah. that would be non being <laughs> um, but the there's a moment there's a sentence for you, uh, a statement for early on in the book where you say illness is not the same as disease yeah. illness is the human response to disease yeah yeah I mean Basically, just to make the distinction between those two things, disease is a pathophysiological abnormality of the body. So um, 
and but illness is response to it. So, for example, a disease, epilepsy, diabetes, um, Parkinson's disease, etc. You know, if you look at the body, you will find a fundamental chemical or pathological abnormality in the body in response to that. But you won't necessarily be ill with those things. So, for example, I could have epilepsy and have a scar in my brain, which means I have a pathophysiological disease. But if my seizures are under control and I'm not having any seizures, I'm not ill. So disease occurs without illness or disease occurs with illness. Um, and illness, is, it works the other way. Illness is, is your response to how you feel. It's your perception of how you feel. You can be ill because you have a disease or you can be ill without disease. And illness without disease is what we're talking about in terms of psychosomatic disorders. And this is where, this is where being a good doctor or not being a good doctor, that's what it's all about, is to... Is you can, if, if we all in this room suffered exactly the same injury, um, we would all respond differently to it. Some of us would shrug it off and not notice it particularly, and other of us would take to the bed for a couple of weeks with it. You know, our response to our own symptoms is different, and response to illness is different. And that's where the art of medicine comes in, is trying to distinguish between different people's reactions and perceptions to what's happening to them. And it's possible that some psycho there's different ways that psychosomatic disease can be generated. So sometimes it's a product of psychological distress. So something awful has happened to you and you can't bear to think about it and you suppress it and now it's coming out as a physical symptom. But it's not always a product of psychological distress. Sometimes it's a product of our own perceptions of what's happening to our bodies. And as Brian says, sometimes you know people can perceive pain and then overreact to it or um, changes that happen in your body with age. People can over-medicalize everything that happens to you. So sometimes it's not that something especially unusual is happening to a person, it's how they perceive it and how they react to their perceptions of it. Um, so there's kind of multiple ways that these kind of illnesses, but the bottom line is that you're best not to overreact to symptoms and over-medicalize them because it does make them worse, basically. There are cases, um you describe in, in the book where um, a patient who ha does seem to have had psychologically produced symptoms also turns out to have a real, to use a now mm. vexed term yeah. in this conversation, mm. a real organic illness. Um, and there's a kind of cliche in a way about uh, what we you know, colloquially call hypochondria, which is that the, a kind of relief on the part of the the patient when, a, when the real yeah. solid, yeah. the real thing comes along. Alice James, uh, sister of Henry and, and William, yeah. writes in her diary uh, towards the end of her life after a 20 years of extraordinarily debilitating but probably unreal symptoms when she's diagnosed with cancer. She writes in her diary, um, all things come to those who wait. Mm. Um, and so there's a kind of sense of relief yeah. And I wonder what your patient's relationship in, in those instances yeah. then is with the news of a real yeah. uh, illness. I mean, yeah, I mean, that I really need to say, actually, is that whenever I'm talking about someone having a psychosomatic condition, it is absolutely based on the assumption that they have been properly listened to, properly examined, and properly examined by their doctor, and or had the appropriate investigations. So it's never... You know, if I see someone with these kind of seizures, and I've seen, I couldn't, thousands of seizures, so that I would feel very confident about seeing a seizure with doing no tests and saying, I know what causes that seizure. 
but I would never, ever, ever not go through the full process of the examination of the appropriate investigations because the diagnosis of psychosomatic disorder is a diagnosis of exclusion and you can't make it until you've appropriately listened to and examined your patients. So I did, um, I'm glad you gave me the opportunity because I didn't think to say that. It is very important. Um, unfortunately, you know, yes, uh, we all get a disease at some point in our lives. We can't escape it, you know, and some people do take that as an opportunity to say, well, the tiredness I've had for the last 10 years, I think it is due to this disease, basically. Um, uh, there was an extract from the book in the, um, in the Guardian yesterday. I was looking at the comments, which is another thing you should never do. <laughs> but I did. And somebody had written, you know, that they'd had, their mother had had symptoms for 16 years. And then finally they found out she had a disease. Now, they didn't say what the symptoms were or the disease was. But if you wait 16 years, you're going to get something, you know. So sometimes people do consider that to be vindication of their original illness. But unfortunately, I think, you know, the thing about psychosomatic diagnosis is you are sometimes going to be wrong. Of course you are. Um, and doctors have to be prepared to be wrong, which is frightening. And it's one of the reasons we don't like making the diagnosis. Because people hate to be told that their symptoms are psychological and then discover at a later date that they're due to something else. So that makes it very frightening for me as a doctor to make the diagnosis because if I'm wrong, people will be furious. Um, so you will be wrong sometimes, but usually it will make itself known very quickly. Um, and also I always try to just be prepared to go back to the beginning again. You know, so if I, if I fully investigate a patient and feel they have a psychosomatic disorder... Um, and then I continue seeing them and something new happens or they think something has changed, I try not to reinvestigate them because it feeds the anxiety, but I'm always prepared to reinvestigate in case I'm wrong, in case there is a disease ultimately. Um, at the risk of being the, the bloke who meets a doctor and, and presents uh, yeah. a symptom immediately, okay. can, you, can you take a look at my problem? There, there, there's a question about uh, a now very loaded term that probably is, is extremely crude, which would mm. be cure, right? Yeah. Um, I know from my own relationship with, with a, a certain kind of hypochondria that in, on a very you know, relatively minor uh, scale that a history of hypochondria and a conscious mm. knowing that you have a history of it yeah. doesn't help with how you experience symptoms in the present. Mm -hmm. The fact that you have got over your mm -hmm. non-existing or somatically produced, uh, psychologically produced symptoms in the past is not going to convince you in the present yeah. um, that you're making it up, that it is all in your head. Yeah. So I, I wonder about the, the long-term prospects for the more extreme yeah. experiences. Yeah. Um, so first I want to just make a distinction between hypochondria and psychosomatic symptoms. So in a, someone who has a psychosomatic disorder, usually they are being disabled by their symptoms, and those symptoms could be anything. So it could be paralysis, seizures, pain, tiredness, blurring of vision, um, itchy skin rashes. It could be anything. Their disability is not emotional. They're not anxious. They're not depressed. They have a physical symptom in place of their emotional distress, and their disability is caused by their physical symptom. Someone with hypochondriac is not like that. They... They might have minimal physical symptoms. They are disabled by their anxiety about their symptoms. So one group is anxious and disabled by that. The other group isn't aware of their anxiety and they're disabled by their physical symptoms. With regards to cure, right, it's, there's no such thing as a cure. But let's just start with the most extreme people like this person, these people with seizures. If I see someone, and Pauline, who I discussed first, who I saw her with her seizures 
I think it was the day after they started. If I see somebody with their seizures the day after they start and address the diagnosis immediately, the seizures will stop very often. If I see them two years after the seizures have started, then there's a 30% chance they will stop, or probably even less than that. So these extreme cases are almost impossible to, um, to help significantly enough that their disability will go away. So the key is to see people at the very start. And that's also a very big part of the point of the book for me, is that if people can think about these symptoms, or psychological potential for their symptoms at an early stage, then you can stop it progressing. What you can't do is cure them of the, um, the tendency. So it's a bit like trying to change someone's personality or something. You know, if you're a worrier, you're a worrier. The only thing you can do differently is um, change the way you react to the worry. So it's perfectly reasonable for someone to worry about their health. Um, and it's perfectly reasonable if you get a new symptom, because as you've said, you know, the next symptom might not be anxiety-related. I don't want to be responsible for you not going to your doctor. <laughs> but um, basically, the next symptom might not be anxiety-related. So it's perfectly reasonable, if you have a history of hypochondria, to go to your doctor. But be prepared, to, assuming that you trust your doctor and they appear to be a good doctor to you, as, um, then be prepared to take the reassurance. So you can't get rid of the symptoms, but you can get rid of the way that they paralyze your life. And that's, so it's not really a matter of curing the tendency, it's about changing how people react to them. And I should say the point about doctor as well is, you know, if I went to my doctor with something I was worried about and uh, they told me it was nothing, but I felt like they hadn't listened to me or they hadn't examined me the way I felt I should be examined, etc. I'd just get a second opinion. You know, I'd, most doctors don't mind that. I don't want to miss something. So if you want to get a second opinion because you didn't trust my opinion, please do that, because I don't want to be wrong any more than anyone else does. When you talk about, the, if, not, if not cure, a way of managing and, mm. uh, and reducing the possibility of, of, uh, of escalation, mm. are you describing there um, an ambition uh, or reality in terms of how people are treated? Oh, yeah. I mean, no. Uh, you know, the, the huge problem is that there, you know, yes, it's this is a lovely idea I've just presented that you can be taught how to deal with your anxieties differently. I can't teach you. The person, I can only say, well, try not to overreact. But, you know, that's very easy for me to say to you now, you know, sitting in my office when I say to a patient, don't worry about that headache. When they're with me, they don't worry about it. But then at 2 a.m. in the morning when they're at home with their own, you know, and I'm not there then they're going to start worrying about it again. So I can't cure that. That really is the work of a psychologist and a psychiatrist. Um, and that's really a big problem as well, because um, I work in the UK at the moment, but it's the same in most places, um, which is that we have a lack of psychologists and psychiatrists to support people with these sort of conditions. Uh, that's not the fault of psychologists or psychiatrists. It's really a matter of a lack of money. And unfortunately, psychological problems don't have that sort of headline-grabbing um, thing that allows people to, you know, fundraise. I have never seen anyone running the marathon for psychosomatic disorders. If anyone wants to volunteer, that'd be great. Um, you know, it's just not a headline-grabbing sort of disorder, basically. So there's a lack of money and a lack of treatment facilities. I work in, in the National Hospital for Neurology in London, a um, major centre um, with every sort of... If you want to scan, any kind of scan, you can have that scan. But, and it, if you want to see a psychiatrist, you'll probably see them quite quickly. But when you have to wait to have intensive treatment for these kind of disorders, you wait a year and a half. 
and that is in the absolutely, you know, one of the, the biggest centres for neurology in, in, um, in Europe. Um, nobody with any other kind of condition would ever be asked to wait a year and a half in that state um, waiting for treatment, but unfortunately there is a huge lack of treatment facilities. And again, that's what I hope, you know, that people can be more aware of this so that something can be done about that. Is that the kind of main impetus behind you writing the book? I think the main impetus actually is to raise awareness in general mm -hmm. because I have this constant recurring experience of trying to communicate this diagnosis to people and, and meeting this disbelief. Um, but I know there are doctors in the audience and I don't think any doctors would meet this with disbelief because we all, whether you, it doesn't matter whether you're a neurologist or what kind of doctor you do, we all meet this all the time. Why therefore are people so shocked when it is raised with them? So, you know, obviously, ultimately, what I would like is that we have greater treatment facilities. But in the first instance, what I would really like is that when people go to their doctor, you think, well, I've got a tingling in my foot. Is it a trapped nerve? Is it multiple sclerosis? Is it bad circulation? Could it be psychological? I want these all to be considered equally as equal diagnoses, rather than uh, my very frequent experience of this is people want to... MS ruled out, they want this ruled out, they want that ruled out. When they get to psychological, they won't even consider it. Why not? Why not just consider everything as equal and consider psychological illness as equal to everything else and then we wouldn't have such a problem with it. Nothing matters, it's a place for us to be